All right, so look, I'm back with somebody that I'm excited to interview, and it's so crazy because I know most people are going to see this headline and go, oh my gosh, she went over there with him. And I'm, I'm excited and honored because, you know, we all love and feel like we're a fabric of the Black Lives Matter movement. It has become something that I think has uh, brought this generation uh, to a place where we're now able to hold people accountable in a real way, in a, in a viral way, but also show up and demonstrate uh, the pain of generations of people of color that have gone through what we're going through now. And this woman started the movement, uh, one of the two women, mm -hmm. right, that started the movement that we all um, uh, embody and, and, and are part of and own. And so Patrice uh, Colors. Is it, do I have to say Patrice Marie Con Colors? You do not. Just I Patrice do. Colors. Okay, fine. Patrice yeah. Colors. Okay, because y'all be having like four names, <laughs> you know, especially shout out to my Spanish friends. Y'all be having three, four, five names. I'm like, can we just do abbreviations? All right, no, I do want to say before we even get started, because people are going to say, oh, he's either going to attack her or be biased. Mm. I'm, I'm somewhat biased, but I have a job to do. Yeah. You know, people need to give you your flowers for um, selflessly starting a movement that has become a worldwide global movement that has impacted and brought uh, just light to uh, situations that we would have never, ever seen. That's right. And so I want to give you your flowers before we start because I think, it, you know, we live in a world where hashtag protect black women is a thing online to make people feel like they're doing something. But when it comes to black women who are under attack, you know, we're fast to move with mainstream and just adopt uh, this life sentence or the death sentence. And yes. so before we get into all the details of, you know, what's going on, I just want to give you your flowers because I take a lot of pride and being a part of the BLM movement. Mm, and, you, um, but I'm also very angry with you, <laughs> as you know. We've talked privately, yes, and I'm gonna get have. into that. So thank you. Thank you so much, I really appreciate that. Okay, so why me? Because you could be talking to anybody <laughs> and you chose somebody at the end that's gonna be like, oh no, did she vet this out? Why come here to Hollywood or not? I really, well one, I have been following your work for a long time and I love how you talk to black people. I love how you are, honest, vulgar, opinionated, and I also feel like so much of the conversation around Black Lives Matter has ended up in this particular black space that I feel like you hold and have conversations with. And so that's one. Number two, you're from Stockton, mm -hmm. and I love that you are from Stockton, California, because I literally don't think I've met anyone like you mm -hmm. from Stockton. And also, I don't know if you identify as queer, Gay. gay. Okay, gay. You don't, I don't do the know, queer I thing. I don't know what this queer thing is. You know, <laughs> back when I was growing up, you were either straight, bisexual was like, Maybe. really? <laughs> gay. Um, we knew trans, but like, it was like gay or straight. Yes. And now there's so much I know, going there's on. So that, many. Yeah. So, and I'm part of like the generation who started the like queer stuff. Okay. But I love, I also was like, I need to sit with family. Yeah. Like your family. And it felt very important for me because while many folks know that I'm also queer, like that's not the thing that gets sort of propagated, mm -hmm. um, and I just felt like you would understand how to have this conversation in a nuanced yeah. way. Well, I appreciate it. I also love that she did her background because there were people <laughs> texting me screenshots of conversations. We're like, what do you think about Jason? And they were like, we love Jason. So I'm glad that you actually vetted me in a respectful way, not like, is he messy? Because <laughs> you know, the thing about us, whether you're a black woman yeah. like you or gay or black like me or I am in media, you're in a movement yeah. that just like ignited the world. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to paint a narrative about black people. That's right. And when you're when you're 
up there when you start to get that recognizability by mainstream once they catch it and get and fan the flames that's it's right. a fire that we can't put out that's exactly right so i, I appreciate you for vetting me okay mm -hmm. so uh, i've never interviewed you so if you're watching and you've seen interviews with her i'm going to ask questions that are important to me and hopefully it translates to you and the other people watching so you're at home one day and you say <laughs> black lives matter because <laughs> i'm intrigued by the fact that how did you even come up with the idea we knew Black Lives Matter, but nobody said it out loud or created a movement that was so simplistic yet um, impactful. Yeah, you know, it was, I was it's interesting because I was actually in Salinas Valley, which I don't know if you're familiar with Salinas Wait, Valley. up north? Yes. Of course I know exactly. Salinas. Which is also a prison town. Mm -hmm. I was visiting one of my mentees who had just got caught a case, a robbery case, and it was the same weekend that we were all waiting for the acquittal of George Zimmerman, or we were waiting for the, what was going to happen, you know? I didn't think he was going to get acquitted. Mm -hmm. Like, we all knew he killed mm -hmm. a young boy. Trayvon Martin. Yes, Trayvon Martin. So I was sitting up in the prison, and, you know, I, I was meeting with, with Rich, and at the time his, his wife and his best friend, Haywan, and we were all sitting and talking and processing in the visiting room. And I remember Rich kind of being like, He's not gonna, nothing's gonna happen. And I was like, no, let's be more hopeful. Like something's gonna happen. <clears throat> get back home that night, get on social media, and then start to see like not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And I just remember, I remember, I, like I still get emotional thinking about it. Like I remember crying and just being like, come, like is this, is this really what we're doing in 2013? Like this is the outcome. And I went on social media, I went on Facebook, that's when we were all using it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know when the last time I went to Facebook, but... Because Instagram was a thing, but it wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing yeah. thing, exactly. And I remember going to Alicia Garza's page, because that's my girl. And I was like, what's Alicia saying? Like, and she, she was popping off, you know, and she was like, I'm never... Because I'm, I'm, a lot of people were saying, why are we surprised? Why are we even upset? This is what they do to us. And she was like, no, I'm, I'm always going to be surprised when they do this to us. I'm always going to be upset. Meaning people were complacent with the fact that yes. this was actually happening where yes. a man hunted a young boy down in his community yes. who just went to the store and murdered him and is getting away with it. Yes. So many people on social media were like tripping that people were tripping. It was a lot of black people, you know. Mm. And Alicia, you know, said, she wrote this love note and she said, Black Lives Matter. And then the minute I saw it, I put a hashtag on it. And mm -hmm. I was like, we got to put a like, let's make this thing go viral. That's mm -hmm. literally what I said to her. Mm -hmm. And from there, you know, we spent really the next year and, and Opal Tometi, also there's three of us. She goes by Io Tometi now. Um, the three of us spent the next year trying to figure out, like, how do we use this thing? How do we get people to not be afraid of saying black and Black Lives Matter. Um, and uh, really started to have conversations. It was, it was a conversation piece at first, and it was like an online strategy. And then slowly it would build into what is now a global movement. Well, what was your background at the time? Like, what, what was your day-to-day -day I was taken life? on the sheriff's department in Los Angeles. <laughs> so you were already an activist. Yes, I was already. I was, I was about 10 years in at that point. So I was already, I had, successfully won a bunch of campaigns in Los Angeles. I was a local organizer. I had just started the Dignity and Power Now, which was my first, very first nonprofit organization. And I was taking on the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. My brother was actually brutally beaten by the sheriffs inside the jails. He almost died mm -hmm. when I was 16 years old and it changed my life. It changed everything. And um, I got an opportunity to hold them accountable 
And so I started doing that work one year before starting Black Lives Matter. So when you were an organizer, were you a community organizer? Were you working for a union, a foundation? I was a community, you, you know that because well, you were a I union organizer, organizer, exactly. Yeah. Only people who've been inside that space would know to ask those questions. Yeah. I was a grassroots organizer. Okay. So I was in the streets every single day. I was at the jails every single day. Grassroots means you don't have a large fund. Yes. You don't have no big backing by a yes. family fund or anything like that. You're li grassroots. You are literally from the gr from the mud. That's right. Organizing. And I, and I was meeting with you know foundations and other organizations, basically being like, "What's the appetite to fund work that takes on the police?" Mm -hmm. And you know, at that point, nobody wanted to do that. They're like, mm, "No, we don't. We don't want to touch this." But let's talk about why, because I don't think people understand the community construct of policing. Like, there's yeah. unions, right? I worked for a union. There was no way you were going to come into Kaiser Permanente <laughs> and do anything to a worker who was doing anything they wanted to do, even if they weren't supposed to. That's right. Because you had to weigh whether or not you're going to fight this machine that has millions of dollars, that has a uh, loyalty pledge to their membership. That's exactly right. And has a, a perception to maintain of we don't lose for our members. That's exactly right. So going up against the police, you're going up against a machine that is very well organized and very well funded. Yes. And, you know, I was 28 when I started Dignity and Power Now and started going after the Sheriff's Department. I don't, I knew that the p police were... I knew that they were well-funded. I don't think I understood how big the machine was. Oh, yeah. And how far-reaching until much later. How organized the communication is. Yes. How the press works. They, yes. have, they have the infrastructure to destroy anybody. Literally. Or hide anything. That's exactly right. Yeah. I don't think I fully understood that. It mm -hmm. wasn't until I would say, you know, BLM started to really take on police violence. And we started to uncover the role of the unions and the lobbies and... And then, you know, obviously everything that's happening now where I'm like, oh, they will go after and destroy. That's mm -hmm. what they do. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> you, you, you do the hashtag Black Lives Matter. It goes viral. Uh, now the three of you are spending the year planning it out. Now, what were their backgrounds? Were they organizers as well? Yes. Uh, Alicia was organizing in the Bay Area, which is where she's from, mm -hmm. uh, uh, for workers' rights, specific, specifically for black folks. And Io was leading an organization that was focused on the um, relationships between black Americans and black immigrants. Mm. And so in California, that work is big because the, and in San Francisco or the Bay Area, they're also very left, meaning very, um, you know, they don't have the corporate thing that's driving them. Exactly. It's more about the people and community. Exactly. All right, so when you all are planning <coughs> this and the hashtag, are you still promoting it or is it now you're just planning it? Because at that point, Black Lives Matter as a hashtag had gone viral. Exactly. But it then, went viral multiple times. But was there like a movement attached to it or did it just become a movement of the people? No, it was not a movement attached to it yet. It was a lot of direct actions. There was a lot of people using it. You know, there's some like famous signs of us on Rodeo Drive because the, the Los Angeles team is the first chapter of, of, of the Black Lives Matter Global Network, which would eventually become that. But our first protest was... On, on Rodeo Drive. We were like, we don't need a protest in Crenshaw. We know that Crenshaw knows what's going on. Let's take this to Rodeo Drive. We have these big Black Lives Matter signs that became a really iconic moment on the steps oh, of Rodeo oh, Drive. I live in LA. <laughs> no, I said, but I thought it was smart because yeah. we were rioting in our community, exactly. burning down our businesses, mm -hmm. doing all this shit that they expected us to do and That's being right. angry and continuing to create this culture of um, you know, disbelief that you can bring justice yeah. or like that pain just stays centralized That's to exactly our community. Right. When y'all came to Rodeo and I remember <laughs> driving through Beverly Hills, I said, oh, this nigga's <laughs> 
white people are going to go crazy because now you got their attention. That's right. So that was specifically intentional. That was so intentional. Mm -hmm. And it was exactly because of that. We did not want to, we did not want to bait the cops in our neighborhoods. We know we knew how that would go. Because by protesting, you bring them to you. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I remember when we organized, it was Melina Abdullah and it was her students, Cal State LA students that organized that protest. And we, you know, we, we built the route and everything. And I remember the cops calling me the night before. Because, mm -hmm. you know, we're putting everything on Facebook at this mm -hmm. point. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I'm putting a Facebook invite. Like, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not no security culture. Yeah. There's no signal. You know, there's nothing other than like, blasting what you're doing and the cops called me the night before and I was I was like how they find my number <laughs> and I was like oh I think I put it on the flyer <laughs> and they're like ma'am we hear you're holding a protest tomorrow and, da, 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 da. and you know that this is like you said pre any resources pre like it being global and we were just doing it from our heart now and, and I remember talking to the police saying yes we are and you know they're like you know, we'll, we'll be bringing our, you know, motorcades and things like that. Because we, we don't get permits mm -hmm. when we do protests. Mm -hmm. um, so they, you know, brought their motorcade and we went in and out. And that was, that protest for me changed everything. Mm -hmm. Because Why? if you're from L.A., you know that, and, and probably from California too. Because New Yorkers, y'all can get millions of people out for a protest. Mm -hmm. Like people will hit the streets. In L.A., you know, hundreds maybe. But we got 3,000 people. It was the largest protest at that point I had ever helped facilitate. And it was meaningful because I felt the energy of the people of Los Angeles, and I would argue the country, wanting to do more. And there was a younger generation, you know? You know, we're used to, you know, I, ca I call him OG, and he always laughs about it, Reverend Al Sharpton, and we're used to Jesse Jackson, and we were used to all the old heads, you know, kind of like staging our response. And they had the visibility of the mm -hmm. civil rights era. They had the press machine. That's they exactly had the, right. the, infrastructure the infrastructure to turn that out. This became something very different. This was organic. Mm -hmm. It was truly organic and it was and it was a time. It was a time to be alive and to feel this like, oh, we are all doing this together mm -hmm. and we are all going to challenge which for so many of us, you know, who grew up black and poor, like I did, like the police were our primary enemy. Mm -hmm. Like going outside, I remember, I know, we knew all the police on the block and they knew our names. That's funny, you know, back in Stockton, we, I always think about this guy named Superman. That was a cop, because yep. he would literally jump out of his car and <laughs> take off and catch you in the yes. street. You're like, damn, Superman. But we did know our police. Yes, and not in a good way. Right. Like, it wasn't like, you know, the, the, the police shows where the, cop shows up and brings the kid back and is playing baseball like these people beat us up mm -hmm. these people harassed us and so to have a movement start building where we could finally hold them accountable it was like it was almost like cathartic for mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. and you and you weren't thinking okay i'm gonna become a target no he was like i'm organizing me and all my black people showing up yes. but it wasn't just black people though and that's i think another yes. thing that i loved about the blm movement was it forced non-black people to take ownership in the process of fighting for equal justice That's for people right. that didn't look like them. That's exactly right. And, and was that intentional? Yes, that was intentional and also I would argue organic, you know, because we, we were having lots of conversations. And at this point, it's not just the three of us because as you know, in, in true organizing fashion, you organize, it's each one teach one. Mm -hmm. And you, people start to learn and they start to go out and they start to talk to their EDs and they start to talk to their team, they start to talk to their family. But at a certain point, and this really happens after Mike Brown's murder, um, 
at a certain point, I think people were like, oh, we can't keep being silent. Like, we just watched this little boy die on the concrete for four and a half hours and be left out in the sun. And now the people are uprising. And, you know, I think, peop I think there was a collective sense of guilt where non-black people were like, we, are, we have to show up differently. Mm -hmm. So I start, I remember, you know, the Asian community, I think it was the Asian community that first kind of sent, wrote a solidarity letter saying we have been silent, you know, and we have allowed for anti-black racism to advance us. And then I, I remember Latinx community saying stuff. And then, and then it was a swell of non-black folks showing up. You know, we have um, in Los Angeles a white people for black lives mm. where it became a priority <clears throat> for non-black communities to actually step in to be true co-conspirators mm -hmm. and to say, we're not going to allow this to happen anymore. There was this amazing action that happened in the Bay Area where it was only non-black people mm -hmm. because there was a challenge to like, why do black people have to keep putting our bodies on the lines? Why are we the ones always getting arrested? So a bunch of non-black folks um, held up a police station for hours in Oakland. I don't know if you remember that action. And like basically surrounded the police station so the police couldn't come out, mm -hmm. come at, couldn't, couldn't come in or out. And it was at all those actions just like changed the culture. Well, when you're seeing this and you, you're a black woman mm -hmm who identifies as queer, who connected with two other women of color and got white people telling the police, you're not coming outside. It was at the point where you realized like, we on to something. Yes. And, and it yes. wasn't still an established organization? That was it wasn't still established yet. It was, we didn't become an established organization until 2020. Mm -hmm. Before 2020, we were fiscally sponsored. And, and let's go back. Trayvon yes. Martin started, that was in 2012-13. Yes, exactly. So that's seven years of just grassroots, everybody's bought into the movement, yes. not formalized as an institution. It's not formalized as an institution. At that point, we're calling ourselves a decentralized network, which we are. And many of us are traveling around the world, mm -hmm. kind of like preaching the BLM story. Like, you could do BLM in your country, too. Like, you know, and I remember going to the, to, to the UK in 2015 and all the, you know, black Brits being like, um, how do you do this? Like, and then, and then being, we, and I remember, you know, we were really explicit. I was really explicit. I was like, we shut shit down. Yeah. Like, that's what we're doing. And we staged our first action in the UK. And I just remember hearing, I can still hear it, all of them being like, black lives matter. <laughs> it was like, that's when I started to be like, oh, I, I think like this is going to, be global. Like well, I think we're gonna do this. Because thing. I also think black people in America don't realize black people in, you know, uh, Libya are still fighting sla right. slavery. That's you know, right. like there's black people all over the world who are in some way or another uh, feeling like their black life doesn't matter. That's so I exactly think the connectivity right. between the simple hashtag was something that resonated, regardless if it was a Mike Brown or Tamir Rice or a Trayvon Martin, That's but right. it was also like the Libyan slave trade That's or, right. you know, how black people in other countries were not sh being able to show up That's and exactly treat right. equal. So how are you guys funding this movement that's grassroots from 2013? Because I'm going to tell you, I went home and tried to help out during the Trayvon Martin campaign, yes. worked with the family, did all of that. And the biggest lesson in of all was I didn't have a sustainability plan or any way of you know, having other people pour into it. It was all coming out of my pocket. And I started feeling like my efforts are not real because I'm paying for the Band-Aid. Like yeah. it's not my, I'm not inflicted in this community right. like you all are in Stockton. How do we all participate That's and right. own it and help to keep it alive? So, you know, 
I think it was like maybe 2015, maybe, um, that folks wanted to start giving us money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Alicia, Opal, and I sat together and we were like, ooh, like, what do we, we don't, where are we going to put the money? Because y'all didn't have a bank account. Exactly. <laughs> we didn't have an organization. Yeah. It was just like us. And I think it's important to note that, you know, 2014 happens with Mike Brown and Darnell Moore and I, I don't know if you know Darnell Moore, mm -hmm. um, black gay brother who now lives in L.A., um, but from, from Newark, I had known him for years. And I called him while I was watching, you know, what was happening in Ferguson. I said, I think we should go. But like, I don't think we should just pull up. Cause a lot of people were pulling up to Ferguson, like driving there, flying in. And I was like, I, you know, I, I think we should do something. And, and then he was like, my homeboy has an idea about bringing like a busload. Let's do a freedom ride. Mm -hmm. Let's get people there to provide resources. So we really wanted to do it right, and we called people on the ground, and we met with people like weeks beforehand. Hey, we want to come to Ferguson, but we want to do it right. And we met with a bunch of people, and, and we, we did. We brought over 600 people. Mm -hmm. And this is like all grassroots still. We, you know, did some, it wasn't a GoFundMe. We used something else, because uh, we were all protesting GoFundMe at that point, because Darren Wilson was using GoFundMe. And we drove, we, 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 took, we took the Freedom Ride, to Ferguson and that weekend changed our life. Mm -hmm. It was three days. And I remember, you know, it was pe people from all over the country, including Toronto, mm -hmm. uh, which is how BLM Canada becomes a really big deal in this story. But we ended up leaving Ferguson and we had a mandate. And the mandate was Ferguson is everywhere. Let's go home and let's build. And mm -hmm. so that's where the decentralized network came from. Mm -hmm. And that's where the chapters came from. Mm -hmm. So this is before we had any structure. We didn't, I didn't talk to nobody about like, how do you build a chapter? <laughs> right. I just was like, be a chapter. Mm -hmm. And I was excited about it. Mind you, I'm not thinking excited about- Excited because the idea then now has transitioned into people actually want to own it and yes. build it and be a part of it yes. and lead it. And lead it. And like, this is decentralized. Like we are- this is a, a leader full movement, not a leaderless movement. And for me and my training, it was really important to let you know, people lead in their own communities. So I think we left Ferguson with a dozen chapters, mm -hmm. you know, Chicago, DC, New York, Los Angeles. The bigger cities. Yes, mm -hmm. Michigan. Mm -hmm. And from there, as you know, a lot of people started taking action and there was a lot of directives coming out of Ferguson for Mike Brown, you know, to take action in your own cities, talk about what's happening in your own city, but also connect it back to what this bigger issue. Mm -hmm. So it was very coordinated, mm -hmm. decentralized, but coordinated. And then people wanted to start giving us money and we didn't, we really were like, what do we do? Starting May 16th, VH1 Monday nights are leveling up with two back-to-back -back series premieres. First, we're kicking off the night with a game-changing season of VH1's Basketball Wives at 8 p.m. This time, MVPs Angel Brinks, Brandy, Brooke, British, Duffy, Jennifer, Jackie, and Malaysia are all reuniting for the first time. And you're going to want to see if they can keep uh, you know, that past in the past or whether old scores will resurface. After basketball-wise, VH1's hit series Couples Retreat is back at 9. Escape on this love-altering trip with new additions Ronnie DeVoe, NBA superstar Nick Young, TV personality and my friend Claudia Jordan, Comedian Michael Blackson, rapper Styles P, and comedian Jess Hilarious, which is bound to be a mess. 
These celebrities and their partners will face the reality of their relationships, but will their love make it or will this retreat break it? It's two premieres on one VH1 Level Up night. Don't miss the new season of Basketball Wives starting Monday, May 16th at 8 p.m. 7 Central, followed by Couples Retreat at 9, 8 p.m. Central, all part of VH1's Level Up Mondays. So from 2012-13 to 2015, you're not raising money. No. You're not taking donations. No, because we don't have organizations do that. But for Ferguson, organizing 600 people, because I've organized at a union, yeah. and I know they've said, we need 5,000 people <laughs> to go to LA. I'm like, I, I know we got millions of dollars, but that's expensive. <laughs> Buses, flights, uh, hotels, if you're meals. Like yeah. you can't put six, there's a certain responsibility when you're organizing human beings that you're thinking of first aid, you're thinking of water. You're thinking, is yeah. there shirts? Are there, like, what is it? Like, so it was, we had about, I would say, a dozen people who helped coordinate that ride. And we did raise money, but not a lot, maybe mm -hmm. $40,000. We raised enough money for the bus, mm -hmm. and we raised enough money for food when we got there. Mm -hmm. And a church donated its space to us, mm -hmm. Reverend Starsky, who's no longer at that church, but he was, he transformed all of our lives because he did the sermon of a lifetime, and many of us who were queer and trans had not set foot in the church in a long time. Mm -hmm. Many of us were kicked out of the church, but his whole sermon was like, this is a time for all of us, all black people to come together. And folks were coming up to the pulpit and cry. It was transformative. Mm -hmm. And we didn't spend, it wasn't a whole lot of money. Mm -hmm. This is the other thing, like. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing the math, 4,000 people, 60, wait. 600 people. 600 people, $4,000. I don't even know what y'all ate grilled cheese sandwiches, <laughs> peanut butter. We and had local folks cook us meals because you know. people bought into and were exactly. supporting it. Okay, exactly. So 2015. Now you come back. Now you have the 12 chapters. You're focused on building this out into a real like not not that it wasn't legitimate before, but you know, people can't give you money and can't fund a movement if it's not legitimately created, formed, LLCs, all that. Exactly. So now you have a three-year movement. You have some success and traction. You have global visibility. You still don't have the ego like, I'm the bitch that did all this. Because as I'm sitting here listening to you, I do come from the union industry yeah. where it's not about you. Exactly. And I think that was one of the things that kind of made it difficult for me as I grew into my career in entertainment because exactly. it is about you. Mm -hmm. And I was always reluctant to make it about me. But how did you not want to make it about you. You're asking the best questions. Wow. Well, I mean, I'm the best. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny you say that because I n neither none of us ever thought to make it about us until we started getting excluded from it. Mm -hmm. So, 2000 end of 2014, early 2015, as the movement's growing, and as more people are getting involved, and as this global network is starting to develop, the news starts to report on it. Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, the Black Lives Matter movement. We never called it that. They started calling it that. Mm -hmm. And mainstream. Mainstream, yeah. They started calling it the Black Lives Matter movement. I was like, oh, shit. Like, what? They've seen it as a movement. And there was one MSNBC um, sort of like roundtable that happened. And it was called the Black Lives Matter roundtable. Mm -hmm. And not none of us were at that table. Mm -hmm. And so mainstream had hijacked the movement to yes. create its own conversation. Yes. And why do black people not see this? Like, <laughs> I would, no, it, no, it's really frustrating yes. because that's not the first time it's happened, won't be the last. That's right. Did, did, the, did our people see that? So people who are inside the movement, Sorry. you know, yes, they, they were texting me like, sis, turn on the TV. Like they're talking about Black Lives Matter. Why aren't any of you there? Mm -hmm. So then, in real Patrice Colors fashion, because I... I'm, I, I can be 
humble to a point, but then now when you start to erase black women, I'm like, come on, you guys. Mm -hmm. So I start tweeting to like my 200 followers at the time. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this, these are the women who started Black Lives Matter. It, you know, and I kind of, I, I, I tag us. And other women, just a generation above us who, who know me were like, wait, you, you all started this? Mm -hmm. People like Rosa Clemente and Asha Bendele and Dream Hampton, and they start tweeting it. And they start being like, let's not have another generation that erase black women. And they start calling like. So that was the first protect black women. Yes. And then the real action happened to do with them. Yes. And they start calling sort of, you know, producers like get these women on CNN. They're the ones who started this, have them talk. And I think the one thing that was important about the challenge of, you know, erasing us was because Black Lives Matter to us was more than just about police violence. Black Lives Matter was about queer rights. Black Lives Matter was about workers' rights. Black Lives Matter was something that was much bigger than what the media was sort of pigeonholding it to be. And it also had a feminist framework and a womanist framework. And there were all these things that were getting lost because the media was deciding that it was now a movement and it was trying to speak on our behalf. Well, I think they tried to water it down with all lives matter too. Yes. And Black Lives Matter was so inclusive that all black lives matter. That's right. What, what, when you saw that happening, what did you think about that? We started that. We started, we, ha we started to realize that there was going to be, we started to see people use Black Lives Matter for a lot of things, mm -hmm. including the exclusion of black women, black trans people, black queer people. And so we started to say, hey, this is all Black Lives Matter. Like, but when they were saying all Black Lives Matter, I mean, all lives matter, oh, that was like a movement yes. to say, okay, like we get Black Lives yes. Matter, even though we know in the world that they don't matter as much as others. Yes. When you saw them saying all Black Lives, all, all lives matter. It was infuriating. Mm -hmm. I, I have a much different response to all lives matter now, mostly because it's so marginalized. Nobody's mm -hmm. like, if you say all lives matter now, people would be like, you don't even do that. Like right. Hillary at the height of her campaign was saying Black Lives Matter. You know, everybody had to prove themselves. Um, but during the time that All Lives Matter, similar to Blue Lives Matter, started to come out, I was like, oh, y'all are literally trying to erase what's happening. Mm -hmm. And, and as, as you know, you, you'll remember so many conversations that we had to have publicly, like, yes, we know All Lives Matter. And right now we're talking about black lives and when black lives matter, all lives will matter. And that became like a big important moment for us an intervention because so many people were saying all lives matter as a way to erase the black lives matter movement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so how did you guys have the fortitude of thinking through like the calm strategy of controlling the narrative? Because <laughs> it's easy to get lost in mainstream. Because we had a lot of amazing black comm strategists who came on board to be like, okay, this is how y'all gonna talk to the media. Mm -hmm. This is what you're gonna have to need to say. And you know, the three of us had been talking to media for a decade at that point. Um, but it, I think it's so important for people to know and to say in this interview that Black Lives Matter was never just the three of us. Mm -hmm. It was always dozens, hundreds, <clears throat> and eventually thousands of black organizers that would galvanize themselves around this around the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, so 2015, <laughs> you're putting in structure, you're getting chapters, you're saying, okay, we need to figure out how to get a bank account and form this business <laughs> because now it's growing, it's massive at this yeah. point. I remember watching 
Black Lives Matter LA, Black Lives Matter California, Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter New York. Then it just started growing everywhere. Yeah. Then you see overseas. And it, became, it really became this huge, massive yeah. thing. You decide to form the company, form, the, uh, form it as a, a company. Now, when did you all start talking about, okay, now how do we raise money or how do we accept money? And well, what, what is that conversation such, like? Such, such a good conversation. Um, it's tricky because we didn't start the organization just yet. We went to a fiscal sponsor. So a lot of grassroots organizations can't, they don't have the infrastructure to start their own nonprofit. So they go to a bigger nonprofit or they go to a place where they help incubate nonprofits. So we went to a fiscal sponsor at the time because one of our first donors was Prince. Really? <laughs> yes. Prince was the first one, the first real celebrity to be like, we want to give you money and we didn't we didn't have a place to put it. So we went to a fiscal sponsor and they were like, absolutely. I think it was like $10,000 that mm -hmm. he donated. But it was, it's Prince. Right. It was such a big deal. And, and then from Prince, it became Beyonce mm -hmm. and Baygood. And they gave us a quarter million. And so that happens. And so we're sitting with like, for us, there's a whole lot of money. Right. You know, like we had not. But not for a global move. I no, mean, exactly. Like, see, not and, for a global move. And global this is movement. why, I mean, I wanted to talk to you because, and I'll get to the why later. Right. $250,000 to a person sitting in their home working mm -hmm. nine to five, know. you know, making 60000 a year or whatever. Yeah. It's a, you're rich. That's right. But a global movement, um, just transportation messaging, paper, <laughs> uh, flyers, banners. Not uh, to mention having to, you're going after one of the biggest machines in the world, yeah, the police. Yeah, that's, that's a... <laughs> Well-funded. Well, yes, okay. So 250000 10000 that's coming in. So now what? So now we're like, okay, what do we do with this? And, you know, we want to build a board because that's one of the first things you do. And we start figuring out how do we build a board. And I'm going to just be honest. At this point, it's a lot going on internally mm -hmm. because it's not all, like, you know, roses and peaches, mm -hmm. like... Folks are starting to be like, wait a second, why y'all getting the, why y'all now the ones in front? Like, mm -hmm. wait, we got this money. Why can't we use it for this? But do you think who now who was saying that? Was it the organizers? Was it just chapters? It was chapters. Okay. It was organizers. And it, this was whispers. It's whispers and also explicit. Okay. Like, and these are not bad questions, right? Like, we did not start this movement to then start a nonprofit organization. In fact, the three of us were really like, do we really, we all, we all are literally running our own nonprofits right now. Like, mm -hmm. does it make sense of this? But like, why would we turn down money? Mm -hmm. You know, there's this, this important opportunity. People are saying like, you know, you all have been in this work for, the, for a decade now. This is a good opportunity. So I think we were just, there was a lot of message, messages, a lot of us being pulled. And folks on the ground were like, you know, we need this money too. Mm -hmm. So what we did with the, with the money is we dispersed it amongst mm -hmm. the chapters, which meant it was very, you know, it's like, what, 10K barely mm -hmm. to go to. And so that was kind of our first go around with so, like. So let me back. Okay. Yeah. So you formed this structure. Now, is, are the three of you like executive director? What, what, are, your, no. what are your titles? Co-founders still. So just co-founders. I know, which is and, like so and, tricky. And, and so do you think the disconnection between the people who became a part of the movement and this grassroots and they own it and you, you're preaching ownership and local yeah. ownership, right? So it's like your state has a governor, but yeah. there's a president and there's a yeah. Congress. Do you think because they built it locally and they felt that ownership that you empowered them to feel, it became a why are we 
thing because yes. you didn't have that overhead infrastructure of yes. president, vice president? You're probably the first interviewer that understood mm -hmm. that just like that. Yes, like I think that well, because you can't build a movement of the people and not take not own the leadership. Yes. But you also don't want to own the leadership because you don't <laughs> want them to think I'm your leader. That's exactly right. Right. It was a very there's so many things that I look back at that if I knew better or would I do differently? I don't know. I don't know what was the right decision. Was it the right decision for us not to be executive directors? Was it the right? I don't know. All I know is that we were doing the best mm -hmm. we could at the time. Mm -hmm. And so that, so we start, we start thinking about, okay, now we have to fundraise because we got these chapters and we, you know, people want support. And, and at the time, a lot of people were fundraising off of the black, off of the back of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, there was a big initiative from many huge foundations that were like the Black Lives Matter Fund, which confused people. Because if the fund is called Black Lives Matter, but the, the, this new organization also called Black Lives Matter, why didn't you all get money from that? We didn't. Mm -hmm. There were so many in the early stages of BLM. And you all didn't have a legal team to start going after people. Did you trademark it? You trademarked it. We did not. <laughs> Patrice, y'all didn't trademark Black Lives Matter? No, we So did you not. build a movement for three years that's global, fire. Yes. I mean, I built the show gagging with Jason Lee and we ain't got some trademarks right then. So you build this global movement. You, why not? Was it because you didn't want to feel like you were taking advantage yes. of, see that guilt shit is what I feel like holds us all back. I know, okay. I know. So, so you, I want to say this again. Yes. You did not trademark. <laughs> no. And protect the brand that you created. Okay. No, because I'm not thinking about it. As anymore. a brand at first. Yes. Got it. Okay. And once we start to go to lawyers. That's why all these people. All of y'all at the rally side of the street with Black Lives Matter <laughs> That's merch. That's where they could do it, yes. You were selling it. Yes. But where was the money going? That's right. Not to us. Crazy. Yes. So we I'm did angry not. for you. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't trademark market. And you know, one of our good folks, man, hit us up, me and Elisa, and was like, you all need to consider trademarking it. And we did not listen. Mm. And I, I, I kicked myself for that. Mm. But there's so many lessons here, you know, yeah. that, that will be imparted to the next generation because there'll be more moments like this mm. and people will learn. But by the time we get to lawyers, good lawyers too, you know, we sit with them. I remember sitting in the corporate legal office and I was like, this is my first time ever having to do this. It was, it was it's also, an, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but when you come from where I come from and then all of a sudden you're catapulted to a certain place, that in between, that's, that's really confusing. Mm -hmm. Like. I remembered sitting in the legal offices and being like, am I really here? Mm -hmm. Like, is it, is it really that big of a deal? And when we asked about trademarking, it's three years in, they're like, it's done now. Yeah. You can't. It's now, a, it's now public. It's public domain at this mm -hmm, point. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh, I, I didn't know that that's what would happen. Mm -hmm. I thought we could, you know, protect it at any moment. Mm -hmm. So you... And, and I think people, it's important to understand, protecting doesn't mean controlling it. That's right. right. I mean, controlling your narrative is important, but protecting it is so that way it doesn't uh, get co-opted or doesn't, right. get, doesn't run out of control of why it was intended right. to be. Okay, so you're now raising money. You're not the executive director, which you should have been, which I would <laughs> I'd have been executive director, chairman of the board, president, I would have been vice president, janitor. I would have just owned it all. And it's only because I feel like, like right now, I'm in the middle of that catapult. Yeah. And I'm talking to people who want to be a part of it. Yeah. And the big conversation is control. Yeah. 
and ownership. Not because I don't value your thoughts and participation. It's because I have a vision that I own and control and that I got people to buy into. And I don't want that control to lose. So then it becomes hijacked and turns into something that's overly commercialized, watered down, and doesn't resonate with the people. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm sure that was... <laughs> I know, I'm, okay. Organize it, organize Exactly. So, okay, now you, you, you're you starting to bring in money. Beyonce, Jay-Z are pulling up. Prince is publicly supporting it. Now celebrities see that it's the popular thing to do. Not that they didn't believe in it, but now yeah. it's like, I got to ride this wave. That's right. And it now it just explodes. Yes, we're still not getting a ton of money, though, for a global network. So I think at the height... Nobody was giving you millions at that point? No. Really? No, we weren't getting millions. Did you guys have a network of like emails and outreach, like you could reach all the people? Yeah, and you know, it's funny because most of our donors before 2020, and even while I was there from 2020 to 2021, were individual donors. So you know the way folks who are running for Congress or president, you know, usually get small dollar donors and they're able to raise millions of dollars. That's really what was BLM's model. Not on purpose, it was just how people gave to us. Mm -hmm. and. So we are fiscally sponsored and we're getting small do dollars. And I think at the height before 2020, you know, the, it was any, anywhere between one to $3 million. Mm -hmm. Still not enough money. For a year? Yes. One to $3 million is what we were receiving. Some, I don't, you know, we got some foundations, um, some foundation support, but we're still controversial. You mm -hmm. know, we're doing direct actions. We're hitting the streets. Like, Although it's popular at this point, it's still, as you know, as a, as a former union organizer, there's ways you organize. Yeah. And we were, we were challenging all of that. Well, I'm sure on the outside, people didn't understand what is this turning into? You're That's becoming right. a political problem. Yes. You know, exactly. do you have a C4? <laughs> if they got a C3, C4, oh, they over there raising money. Oh, they're going to be a pack. Oh, they're going right. to endorse candidate. Like yes. it becomes, I think people that don't understand the infrastructure of how organizations or organizers work in, in these different movements, um, don't understand like you be, you become a threat when people know you got the people. That's exactly right. When you got right. the people, you got voters. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, you know, 2015 to 2020 is really a time of a lot of things for me personally. I got, I got pregnant and had a kid. I'm still flying all over the country. Um, you know, 2016 is Philando Castile and Elton, Elton Sterling. I got invited to go to Obama's like um, town hall, you know, where Erica Garner was, may she rest in peace. And many of the families who were impacted police violence, it was a shit show, honestly. It was a really, it was kind of like window dressing. And, and there was so much at that point, if you can imagine, people had been in the streets for years at this point, and people are tired and they're exhausted, and there isn't a whole lot of money coming in. And then, you know, it's an election season, mm -hmm. and we are challenging the Democratic Party. People are pissed at us about it. You know, obviously we're challenging the Republican Party, but we're also like, y'all are not going to just come up in here as a Democratic Party and get us to vote for you if you don't have a black agenda. And there was a lot of work that we did in 2016 to challenge the Democratic Party specifically around what a black agenda would be, and then obviously mm -hmm. Trump gets elected. And that does change. It changes the, the nature of our organizing because now we have an actual fascist in office and we start to witness the rise of, you know, right wing mm -hmm. and the rise of the right wing, both on the ground, but also in media. And I don't think I or any of us were prepared for what that was going to then do to, to us. 
Well, I remember uh, very clearly when I was in the heart of the Trayvon Martin campaign and Obama publicly saying that if he had a son, yes. he would look like Trayvon. And they, they... Do you, and I know he did that, and I know how big that was for black people, yes. but do you think Obama did enough for black people in the Black Lives Matter movement? No. And I have a different vantage point, though, now, given what, given who he was and what he was, the power structure. Like, I don't think Obama could have been a black president, like a real black president, given the nature of this country and the role. And the fabric of racism that is yeah. very, very massive. Yes. Yeah. And well, I don't know, it was like, what, by the, by the end of his tenure, like we start, started to learn how many times that he had been almost killed by, and like not really truly protected by um, his security or people getting over the security gate. Like I, you know, will always hold electeds accountable. And also I have a very different vantage point for what he was up against, mm -hmm. especially now what's happening mm -hmm. with me. Want a new credit card but not sure how to choose? You don't need to apply for the first offer you see in the mail. Credit Karma can help you zero in on the right option for you and apply with more confidence. Credit Karma uses your credit profile to show you offers that are tailored to your financial situation. Credit Karma partners with a wide range of card users so you can be sure that you're exploring all sorts of options. Best of all, Credit Karma uses your credit data to show you your chances of approval before you even apply, helping you apply with more confidence. Comparing cards on Credit Karma is 100% free and won't affect your credit scores. Credit Karma, create your own karma. Go to creditkarma.com or the Credit Karma app to find the card for you. And so, um, so let's talk about that because I think back in the 60s, you know, and I, I know Angela Davis was somebody that you put us on email and was yeah. going to participate today and she's not here, but, um, and we, we love what she's gone through. Mm -hmm. If you look at her story, you look at what you're going through, it's, it's very similar mm -hmm. in the sense of, you know, back in the day where you had modern-day lynching, now mainstream does their lynching, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the mainstream media. And so when I saw, like, all this stuff in the headlines with you, um, I was like, yo, I got to talk to her. Because I feel like, the pa I've always said on my show, the hashtag protect black women is not a real thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the intention of wanting to protect a black woman, and black women are the most, you know, targeted or disrespected uh, people on the, on the planet. Why do you think... Um, it was so easy to start the lynching we're getting ready to get into on you mm -hmm. around uh, you not taking the oath of poverty and living yeah. as a successful black woman. Yeah. I think there's a number of reasons. One, there's been so much happening inside of the movement. Um, you know, there's so much criticism inside of the movement. Some of that is valid criticism. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of generative critique. I think you know, the only way we do better is by hearing from people what, what they feel like or have seen that could be better. So I think there was a real break, there's been a real breakdown internally inside of our, inside of our movement. And um, there's things that, you know, I have been accountable for over this last year and I will continue to be. But, I, but in true, you know, right-wing fashion, they took those critiques and then they used them again. They weaponized it mm -hmm. against me and against our movement. So what were the critiques? The first critique was that I bought a house. Mm -hmm. um, and I was so shocked, Jason, that that was like a thing. I was like, 
I bought a house in Los Angeles and it was $1.4 million mm -hmm. and that's actually like a steal mm -hmm. in Los Angeles. Um, but that, that, that was like created, you know, that sort of... Was there an undercurrent of um, optics that you were maybe doing something wrong with the finances? No, that, that, that wouldn't happen till later. Okay. The first sort of undercurrent was you all have all this money and this really was coming from certain folks, you know, you all have all this money, it needs to go to certain people. Was this coming within the movement? Yes. Okay. Um, not necessarily people that I knew, um, some folks I did know, but not necessarily people who were like the organizers, but more like everyday black people being like, wait a second, you all got all this money? Like, where's it going? Mm -hmm. Like, where? And so that was kind of the first kind of conversation. And, you know, it's hard to keep up with social media. So what people don't know is that we've had tons of conversations with people. We've sat with lots of families. We've sat with lots of organizations. We've done our due diligence. And in fact, we're always, you know, the commitment once that money came in was always to regrant a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And to hold on to a lot of it too, so that finally the global movement that we had created in the global network can be resourced. Mm -hmm. But I think part of the issue I'll just say for me is I wish that I would have had more conversations on the front and I assumed people knew me well enough that they would trust me. I was like, I'm, I've been this is what I do. Like, well, let me ask you, how did people find out you bought a $1.4 million house? Did you tell people that? No, Dirt did. Okay, so <laughs> black people own Dirt, of course, right? Dirt. Dirt's not owned by black people. No, Okay. So exactly. I just wanna... let's, let's be real clear. So $1.4 million, I live in a $4 million house. <laughs> I'm getting ready to get bulletproof windows. Um, my dog's got a play area. <laughs> and I, I mean, and I know because my business is a for profit, right. I can go and put the jewel I got a watch on. <laughs> I can put, a, I smell good. I can do all that because I'm a for profit business. Yeah. I'm not expected to take an oath of poverty. Yeah. Um, I feel like when I worked at the union, I told you this on the yes. phone, my boss, cause you know, I grew up dirt broke, foster care, didn't have no money, got me a little job. I was making 5000 every week, every other week. And, and I wanted to buy me a Mercedes. I had bad credit. I even found a co-signer. <laughs> got me this little Mercedes, it was COK or whatever. It was like the lowest end Mercedes or whatever. And I remember rolling up to work proud that I, as a black man, came from nothing and worked hard. And I, and I mean, I slaved at this job because I believed in the people. I believed in fighting for the people. And I mean, this wasn't even a job. It was a movement. I bought right. into it. And I remember my president, who was making probably three or four <laughs> times more than me, was driving an old Ford Explorer that he never washed. Shout out to Sal Roselli. You can't find a car wash to at least wash the car? You can't even tint the windows, put a sound system in it? Like, you just, you know, and I felt, he, he always wore Dockers and a nice little plaid shirt, but I was trying to, you know, I wasn't wearing Tommy Hilfiger and like that. Right. But I mean, I was coming, I was cute, you know? And then I remember him pulling me in the office and saying, can't keep pulling up to the job like that because people are gonna think that you're stealing money. Uh, and, and, and I remember saying to him, I did not take an oath of poverty to take this job. Yeah. And as a black man rolling up in here at 26 years old to all these other people mm. who may have abandoned their dreams, I'm li living mine because I get to get paid to fight That's for people, right. but I'm gonna also reap the benefits of my hard work. Yeah. And I kept that Mercedes intentionally, even when I was over it because <laughs> it represented to me the ability to live my life the way I want without yeah. buying into the optics. And nobody ever criticized me in the workplace. Mm. So I say all that to say, you buy a $1.4 million house, that 1.4 million 
to people who are working a nine to five, mm -hmm. they hear that money, but you don't pay one, you didn't pay cash? No. So you got to finance. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to ask you a personal question. How much did you put down for that house? Um, 20%. Okay. So 20% is 280. Mm -hmm. But by then, you're, you've been teaching in colleges. You have a book by then? I have two books. Two books by then that were. One, that, one is a bestseller. Which means it's so best. <laughs> Which means it's so better. I also than, have a Warner Brothers deal. It's so better than a lot of other books. <laughs> okay, and then you get a deal with Warner Brothers. Yeah. So as so, was there a disconnect between you being a leader of a movement that was ignited by the pain of watching black people be killed yeah. unjustly, and you being a black woman who has a family to take care of mm -hmm. and an obligation as a black woman to become successful? and be an image to other black women who believe it's not possible. Do you think there was a disconnect between people yes. with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I didn't know that that was a disconnect. Well, you didn't know that. You didn't know trademark. Who the hell was around <laughs> you? You should have called me. I didn't realize that that's how people respond to yeah. me. I'm still thinking I'm like, I'm Patrice from the 818 that people know. Like, mm -hmm. I've been doing this work forever. Like, I didn't think it would be an actual upset mm -hmm. that I bought a house. I did not think that. If I thought that, things would have been, you know, I would have done things differently. There's whole YouTube videos of like, Patrice Cullors got it wrong. This is what she should have done, literally. Like, of it, like investors who invest in stuff. Like, she should have done this and that. I wasn't thinking like that. Did you didn't have an advisor? No, not to advise in that way. And I'm... You didn't think of having... Well, if you would have paid for an advisor with the BLM money, then it would have been like... <laughs> right? Yes. You know, I think the other thing is that I have had to, you know... One of my good friends said to me, she's like, I know you think you're still a grassroots organizer. You're not. Mm -hmm. you're, you're different now. That doesn't mm -hmm. mean you're not a part of the movement. That doesn't mean that you don't love black people. Like, but your relationship to who you used to be, that's an old person. Mm -hmm. like, and I think I've had to really come to terms with that in this last year and a half. I also think, just to a point you made, like, I believe that black people who fight on behalf of black people should get paid. Mm -hmm. I don't think we should take an oath of poverty. I think that is a really slippery slope. Mm -hmm. And I think it really impacts people's ability to be full, fulfilled black people. I have met so many brilliant black organizers, comm strategists, um, so many brilliant black people inside of our movement who deserve to get paid, who mm -hmm. deserve to not have to work five different jobs mm -hmm because they want to still be a part of the movement. They deserve to get an income. And I, I really, you know, I really want to make sure I make that very, very clear. Mm -hmm. And I hope that in this whole situation, you know, one of the lessons that we do learn is that we don't expect black people who are sacrificing their lives to not be able to take care of themselves mm -hmm. and their families. Because we have already seen that a generation ago. If you look at what happened with Malcolm, if you look at what happened with MLK, like, so many of our leaders who did sacrifice for us did not leave, weren't, weren't able to leave their children anything. And that was something, you know, as... Well, and they left their children because they became such a threat, they were killed. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. And people threatened to kill you. Multiple times. Mm -hmm. I was doxxed, you know. I've been doxxed so many times, but when the, when the, in 2021, when right-wing media specifically went, went after me, they doxxed. They doxed me. And that's and where they release your information. They released my information. And, and that was, I have a six-year-old, mm -hmm. you know? That's really, it was, it was beyond scary. Mm -hmm. It was like, I felt like, and many people were calling me. They're like, you know, 
I had someone come up to me the other day and they're like, I had never met them and they're like, sis, I just want to say I'm really glad you're alive because mm -hmm. what happened this last year scared mm -hmm. the shit out of me. I thought, you know, we have a collective memory mm -hmm. of what happens to our leaders. Mm -hmm. They don't survive. Mm -hmm. There's only a few leaders. But your problem is you had imposter syndrome yeah. and didn't realize you had become one. <laughs> That's exactly and you just walking around, you just walking around in pavilion, pavilions <laughs> looking for mushrooms that Rico don't want to eat, not knowing, right? That's exact, yes. And not wanting to accept. I think so. Not wanting to accept and also just wanting to still be able to do things that I'm not able to do in the same ways anymore. So you have the $1.4 million house. Do you have bulletproof windows? I do not have bulletproof windows. Do you have a security guard sitting outside <laughs> yes, your I house do. every night? I do. Had to. Yes. Okay. Did you have a Rolls Royce? No. Black Lives Matter. <laughs> if I was the CEO, I'd be moving around like the president <laughs> because I have worked in unions where I, I saw offices yeah. targeted and bombed and yes. all of that. And so I understand when you got the people, you got the power. Yeah. I understand that on a political level because yeah. we've lobbied Congress. I understand on an election level because I was out there in the streets for Barack in yeah. 2008 telling white folks to vote for a black president yeah. and having dogs sicked on us and yeah. people call the police on us. And I understand when I did the Trayvon Martin campaign that there was something happening where we, were, we had stirred that pot where now things were starting to bubble. Yes. Things were starting to brew. And there's no way when you put that heat on that people are not going to want to put that fire out. I know. So you have the $1.4 million house <laughs> and the mainstream media start fanning the flames yeah. of another nigga taking money. Yes. Why they don't do that to Sean King? Now they started... <laughs> I'm not a fan of Sean King. I've publicly said this. Yeah. Um, you know, his family came out and said he was white. Okay, whatever. I felt like he had become a part of a movement, and he does a great job. In my opinion, this is Jason Lee's opinion, <laughs> he does a great job of gaslighting people into donations that we don't know where the money goes. Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter, we see the organizing. We see the, uh, the, the press releases and the press conferences and the, the, the things that the tangible things that yeah. Black Lives Matter do. Am I missing something with Sean King where I don't see the tangible things or are people not looking at him with circumspect the way they're looking at the black woman that they not building a hashtag to protect? Such a good question. And I'm on no comment on Sean King. Okay. <laughs> Says a lot to me. <laughs> Why do you think it's easy for people to cancel or try to cancel you and go after you and lynch you in the press yeah. or in the media? Uh, and not the same energy for Sean King? Um, I mean, I think it's simply because I am a black woman. I think we're easy targets. I think I'm not super loud. I don't, as in, like, I'm not telling people, like, you know, when everything happened to me around the houses, I remember calling folks and them being like, just go on a live and tell them what... And I was like, that's so not my personality. Mm -hmm. Like, I am... When I... I am so used to fighting for everybody else, and this happens to a lot of black women, mm -hmm that this last year and a half I had to be like, how do I fight for myself? Like, I know how to protect everybody else. Like, I've been in courtrooms. I have been on the front lines. I have, you know, I'm the primary caregiver for my brother. I'm his conservator. He has severe mental illness. I know how to do those things. But it's been a very different orientation to be like, now I have to protect myself. And I think in general, there isn't a culture of protecting black women. Mm -hmm. There is a, a deep culture of distrusting black women, of, you know, side-eyeing black women, of minimizing, undermining. I also think people, you know, couldn't make the connection between, like, 
okay, she started Black Lives Matter, but then like, how is she also doing all these other things? I have said 50 million times, here are all my jobs, and it's like a disconnect. It's mm -hmm. almost like black women can't be successful mm -hmm. or black women organizers can't be successful. I, I don't know, it's something I'm still trying to wrap my head around, but I do think it's misogynoir. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, I think it's anti-black racism. I think it's um, anti-womanism, and I, I'm watching it in real time. I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm seeing it happen to me in real time. Do you think if Sean King looked like Van Jones, he'd be treated different? That's a really good question. Because I, I benefit from the proximity to whiteness. That's a good question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let, there's li we'll let you there know. is light skin privilege there. Okay. Yeah. Um, when you, okay, so first of all, we're coming up on the anniversary of you stepping down from the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, this is where I got a problem. <laughs> This is where I got a problem, because why? Why did you step down from an organization you had the privilege to continue to be a part of? I really appreciate that question. Um, I want to be really honest with you. I stepped down because I didn't feel like, back to protecting black women, I didn't feel like there was enough infrastructure, not just in the organization, but movement-wide to protect me. Mm -hmm. I really thought I was gonna die. Mm -hmm. And I was like, death or raise my six-year-old son? Mm -hmm. Like, I hear Bernice King, you know, daughter of Dr. Martin Luther King, always talk about how much she misses her father. I think she, I think he was killed when she was between four and six. Mm -hmm. I, I kept thinking about that, you know? I watched um, my good friend Linda Sarsour, she, her and Tamika were my rocks during that time. Mallory? Yeah, Tamika I like Mallory. Her a lot. Yeah, we were, they were my rocks during that time. I talked to them all the time. And she said, watch King in the Wilderness. And it was the King in the Wilderness is like the last, it's a documentary about the last 18 months of King's life. And he was like, he had gone to a, a, a doctor and his, the doctor had said, King needs to be hospitalized. Like his mental health is deteriorating. And the response to that was, no, the CIA is gonna get the files and they're gonna know he was in a mental health crisis and then that's gonna be a thing. And I was, I, that made me feel so sad that like one of our leaders probably could have been alive if he received mental health treatment. Like it means he probably wouldn't have went to that talk and mm -hmm. got killed. And so I started to just, I started to really like follow my gut this whole time up until this point. Obviously I'm, I'm leading the way I want to lead, but I'm also listening to a bunch of people around like, stay in, stay in, stay in. And I was like, y'all, I, I think I'm gonna die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I don't think it's a good idea for me to stay being the central target. And nobody else wanted to take the heat. So I felt like it was best for my safety to step down. Mm -hmm. it, that was truly, truly like, a, it was a safety question, you know, when I, made my announcement, I was like, it's time for me to step down, and it's true. I had Who was a part of the process of determining that you were gonna step down, and what was that, what were those conversations like? I would, I talked to chapters. I talked to chapter leaders, I talked to Melina. Um, I talked to folks from BLM Canada. Um, I talked to folks who were inside of BLM who were working there. And you know, it was like the first round of attacks and the second round, and then people started showing up to my house. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, not just paparazzi, but like, random people started showing up to my house and and I was like um I remember knocking on your door mm -hmm. knocking on my door leaving leaving notes to with security mm -hmm. you know I had security at that time it was everybody was on high alert mm -hmm. and 
I remember it was it was an evening, and I don't even know what happened that evening, but I just remember breaking and calling um, calling someone at BLM and saying, I need to leave. Mm-hmm. So at this point, the Ku Klux Klan had made a threat. Um, who had made a threat? It wasn't the KKK. It was, there was two credible threats that the FBI told us about. One was at, one was, one was right around the elections. For Trump? Uh, for Biden. For Biden, okay. And the other one was after the uh, January 6th, um, what, are they, what are we calling them? Riots. Um, Quarantine has made shopping online a hobby. I mean, I love getting new items shipped to my door with a click of a button. Everything from shoes, clothes, and even mattresses. Because who doesn't love getting a good night's rest, right? We all know how important sleep is to our overall health and wellness, right? Well, I'm excited to tell you about our next sponsor, GhostBed. We love their products and can't wait to tell you more about the best beds in the game. I think I've got the best sleep with GhostBed, actually. And before making the switch from other mattresses, I don't think I was able to get a healthy full night's rest. You know, the kind where you wake up feeling refreshed, no insomnia, no sluggish feeling. Let me tell you, GhostBed is made in the USA by Nature Sleep, an industry leader in the mattresses space since 2001. And it's a family-oriented business. Every product from the mattress to their sheets and pillows is designed with cooling features so it's perfect if you sleep warm, which I do. Most people do. Shipping is free and fast, 24 hours fast. And you even get an industry-leading warranty up to 25 years, two times the industry standard. Plus, there's easy financing on mattresses with rates starting at just $35 a month. GhostBed offers $0 down and 0% APR financing. So yes, you can buy a mattress for like $35 a month and they're giving you 101 nights to try out their mattresses. And if you don't like it, you can return it and get your money back. No problem. Right now, GhostBed is having a flash sale and you don't want to miss out on their award-winning products. So to ND your perfect mattress, check out ghostbed.com slash unlock. Right now, GhostBed is offering our listeners 40% off GhostBed bundles where you can get a mattress and adjustable base or 30% off site-wide. That is 30% off all mattresses plus two luxury pillows. Use promo code UNLOCKED at ghostbed.com slash unlocked. Hurry, take advantage of these savings. That's ghostbed.com slash unlocked and use the promo code UNLOCKED. The terrorists who climbed up the Capitol? Exactly. Okay. The white I mean, that's what they were. That's exactly right. That ain't what the mainstream I said. Know. Yeah, isn't it crazy <laughs> that Will Smith got banned 10 years from the Oscars, but those people are like in and out of jail when they were sitting at Nancy Pelosi's <laughs> desk with the horns on the head? Crazy. And, and then people got killed. Crazy. What? That's racism. Like literal. Like right at in your face, finest. accept it. This is yes. what it is. We can overthrow the government. Black Lives Matter, did y'all ever climb up the Capitol? Never, ever. And never would we ever, that be a tactic of ours. If, and the fact that those Wait, folks- but isn't it crazy, just no, the thought that- No, it was, it was so bizarre watching it on my TV screen and being like, first of all, where are all the cops? <laughs> like, there was like- Well, some of them were letting them in. I know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, I, I think for me, I just really was like, it's, it, these these two ter- these two credible threats happened, mind you. Uh, and once again, you're you know one of very few report- reporters interviewers who have actually asked about the threats. Th- they've been completely underreported. Mm-hmm. The threats that you know many of us have well, experienced. Black women's lives don't matter. Exactly. 
And I'm experiencing it every day. Like, you know, FBI contacting me twice, two different situations, and being like, just so, just so you know. I don't know if you've ever received a call from the FBI about your life being No, I, right now I get it from the Bloods and Crips. <laughs> That's who caused me to tell me, your life's in danger. <laughs> you know, we smoothed it out on the low. But yeah, I've not gotten a call from the FBI yet. Okay, so, so when the FBI contacts... <laughs> and not to make light of it, because this is a serious no, thing. No, it's like, very serious. Because you don't know when it's going to happen, who it's going to happen, who's going to do it, your kid... Your your friends are Bernice King. She lost her father. Exactly. You don't even realize you up there with the people. <laughs> yes. And you don't want your picture hanging next to Mar- Martin and Malcolm. I literally don't. Okay. I did not sign up to be a martyr. Mm-hmm. I signed up to be a lot of things, and one of them is not a martyr. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by the second FBI call, I'm still, you know, the head of BLM. And it's a very generic call. It's not like it's the head of the FBI. It's like a, cler- it's like a clerical thing. Mm-hmm. They, like call you and they're like, this is agent, da 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 leaving you a message. I don't call, I don't answer phone calls, I don't know. So I, you know, I get the phone call and I tell my lawyer, you know, FBI called me and they're like, okay, let me, let me call them. And they're, they, they have to be vague because it's an investigation. So they say, hey, you know, yes, we did call Patrice Colors with, this is my agent number. Okay, you're her lawyer, great, this is what's happening. We have a credible threat against her life, you know. Lawyer asks, well, what is it? Can't give you that much information. But I'm in true organizer fashion. I'm like calling my lawyer, ask this question, ask this one. You know, so finally the lawyer gets from this last one, well, we're not the real agents on the case. It's the folks out of Atlanta, so call the Atlanta office. So now I'm scared because it's Georgia. Like mm-hmm. it's not, these are not some like California folks. Mm-hmm. It's like white supremacists in Georgia. And the, the Atlanta office, honestly, it, it was a brother, and obviously I won't disclose anything, but he was great. He gave us so much information because he was like, yeah, this is scary and mm-hmm. you should have more information about mm-hmm. what's happening. But it's not like the FBI is like, okay, and now we're going to come protect you. Right. So now, okay, so this, so the $1.4 million house uh, starts to die down. At that time, how much are you making from BLM, from the organization? I'm not. I'm a volunteer. I know. Hold on. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. You're not taking any salary. (laughs) No. But you're also not supposed to be working to make money to afford to live. (laughs) Okay, I'm just, I'm not judging, I'm just asking. Yes, yes. Next time you do something, hire me as a (laughs) I'm head of comms. Because I'll go up there at a podium and say, thank you everybody for coming. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) Because at some point you can't entertain the nonsense. No, I know. But then when you don't, it builds. Yes. Okay. So now you have the overall look at, or you have the Warner deal, you have the books deals, successful books, you, you, you've have been a speaking teaching, agent, speaking um, agent, yeah. which by the way, my speaking fee, for those of you that know, went from like 15000 to 80000 by one press release. I wasn't even at your level of a global movement, because at that point, I need a million dollars to speak, right. but you probably were feeling guilty to ask for a million dollars. Yeah, right. No, well, yeah. that's why we're here. Right. Okay. <laughs> so now you... You're not on the payroll. You're not making money, but you're doing. You're, but your profile is now so successful that as an entrepreneur and as a human yes. being, you're making money. Absolutely. But you didn't ever feel that you had to donate your personal money to the movement because the movement was making money, right? No, but I always donate. So you were still donating your own personal money to not to the not to like BLM the organization, but I, I'm like a big other causes. Mm-hmm. Really. Yeah. Okay. So now. 
there's your, your success, your profile, and we're now from 2013 all the way to 2020, yeah. And then you buy something else. You actually want to be, you actually want investment property or what is this? No, so I'll give you the, 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 the lowdown. My okay. first property I ever bought was in 2016. <clears throat> and I bought it because I was gonna rent something. Okay. I just had my kid. I was, I was renting like a two bedroom apartment and I called a black realtor and I said, hey, I'm looking to rent, you know, um, in South Central, three bedroom. And she was like, how much you, what can you pay? And I told her, and she's like, why would you rent? Just buy. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I could buy. I had no idea. And she was like, honey, just come into my office. Let's like figure this out. So I bought my first property in 2016. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that, I, it was just like a bit of paperwork. And I think I put like 5% down. And, and that was the $500,000 house? Yeah, exactly, okay. in Inglewood. Um, then from there, I bought my second property, which was for my mom. And that was in Atlanta? Nope. Same. Here? Yeah, like just a couple blocks down the street. Okay. Uh, then I bought a property in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, which was for 400000 Yeah. Okay. Maybe, yeah, about 400000 like exactly. Um, so at this point, I'm like, I have money. But best way to invest is real estate. Real estate. Mm-hmm. And I like work with black, like I work with black realtors and like black investors. And, and when I first started making money in 2016, when I got my first book deal, the first thing I did was like, I've never had money before, so let me hire a financial advisor. Mm-hmm. And I hired a financial advisor and financial advisor was like, listen, here's, let's figure out, you know, what are your goals and things like that. And so I start talking about, I think it was 2015, I hired my first financial advisor. And I was like, oh, I want to buy a house one day, and I don't know when I could do that. Maybe that's a three, five-year goal. But I start to, and, and, and I start to be responsible with my money, and I also not only take care of my small family, but I take care of like a lot of my family because mm-hmm. that's what most black people do when you raise poor and you get money. You t- take care of people. So I bought that Atlanta house, and then at this point. The, my, the last home I bought was like, this is the, this is the home I want. Like, you know, I bought the home in 2016 because it was like, all right, this is like affordable and this is what I can do. Was that your first time owning a house? Yeah, mm. in 2016. It was my first time being a homeowner. And, and then, you know, my mom, I, my mom was living in Vegas and I had a kid and I really wanted her to be close to, to our family. And so I bought her house and it was a surprise. And she, it was like a duplex on 74th and Normandy, you know, like she's was so, it's her first time also being a homeowner. Mm-hmm. So these were all very exciting moments. And things to be proud of. Things to be proud mm-hmm. of. And we ended up selling the Georgia house because where it was at was Trump country and they doxed it. So as in, you know, right wing media put it everywhere. So we just, it didn't make sense to keep that house. Uh, and then it was the, the, the this last house um, that I live in. I'm like, I don't want to say it out loud, but everybody knows my address because... We don't say the address, but how much did that house cost? That's 1.4. Okay. So that was the last house. And still, house. even after... <laughs> now I'm angry. Because I knew about the other houses because, of course, we did our research. Yeah. But $415,000 and $500,000 and 1.4 is not a lot of money. It's not. Of, especially living in L.A. It's not. But the way that the right-wing media painted it and the way that we picked it up was, you know, they said, Black Lives Matter co-founder goes on shopping spree, on house shopping spree, and her portfolio is $3.2 million. So they, 
you know, they, they know what they're doing and they know what's going to ignite people. So I get that. And because I'm in it, I understand how they do it. But how, why do why did black people buy into it? And why do you think you were why did black people buy into it? And second question is, do you think the Black Lives Matter movement failed in protecting you? <laughs> um, I think black people bought into it because the right wing messaging went viral. Mm -hmm. And, you know, folks like the Shade Room picked it up. And then like, you know, that's like a lot of people didn't know about it until like the Shade Room picked it up the mm -hmm. first time. And, you know, I've, I've had a lot like, of our people didn't know. Yeah, exactly. And I've had my conversations with, with folks at the Shade Room about that. You know, and I think, and then they did a whole you know, retraction and they, they, they came through for, for, for the situation, you know, once they heard more about it. And I think at the end of the day, the virility of social media is hard to contain. And once a certain message has gone out there, because it could have been a totally different messaging, which is like, BLM co-founder invests in homes that she that supports her family and that's what black people do and like black people would have seen it differently but it, the fact that the first messaging was you know she has all these homes and she went on a shopping spree I mean at the height of it Jason the New York Post had me on the cover mm -hmm. they put I was like I remember waking up you know the dirt thing came out maybe it was a Thursday then that next day it was kind of quiet, but then by Saturday, I was on the cover of the New York Post, mm -hmm. like physical copies. And I was like, how the, how did they do that? What is going on? Mm -hmm. Like what's happening? And that's when I started to realize like, oh, I'm a target now. Mm -hmm. Like they are actually, you know, what people don't know is these groups have think tanks. They start to message, they, they start to see like, okay, who's the most popular person? Who is, who's the easiest, who's the most vulnerable? I was the most vulnerable. I, there were so many gaps in my, and, and you know, just things I, I'm not operating like I'm a celebrity. I'm operating like I'm a community organizer. Mm -hmm. So I'm not thinking about certain things that need to be um, protected. Mm -hmm. and, and so that, and I think, you know, the question around did the Black Lives Matter movement fail to protect me? I, I don't know, I don't, I don't wanna place blame. I think that's too harsh. I just don't think we know how to protect each other. I don't think we have enough wherewithal and infrastructure to differentiate what is generative critique and how we hold someone accountable without throwing them under the bus or without them, you know, in my situation, like not being able to get the protection that I needed. There's a lot of things I wish happened. But how do we say you created the Black Lives Matter <laughs> movement and then when mainstream goes on a lynching campaign, the Black Lives Matter don't show up to say that your Black Lives Matters and you not be angry. Melina Abdullah has been the biggest supporter of me. Like she has shown up from the beginning. And so there have been individual people who have been very present and very protective of me, but our movement infrastructure does not have the capacity to protect black women right now. We just don't. It's not a judgment. My hope, like I said earlier about, you know, this moment, my hope is that this is a learning moment. There's this my hope is that we this won't happen again and we will protect each other. So, what we're here talking about is 
want to just cap this real quick. You started a movement for the people because you believed in it and you believed it was important. It became successful. You became successful. We're talking about a $1.4 million house. I thought there was like a $10 million house. Like you went into the fund and just like put a miscellaneous budget aside for real estate. So we're talking about a $1.4 million house. Okay. Let me ask you some questions. Have you ever stolen from the Black Lives Matter no. fund movement? No. Have you ever asked for $10 million? Okay, so they raised $90 million. Jesus. Who is over there? Okay. They raised $90 million. In February 2021, they had taken a 90 million. You didn't even get 10% of that as a... No, because you can't do that. No, you can't take 10%. Okay, did you take 5% of that? No. Okay. So when you're raising $90 million, you don't believe that as the leader of the organization, you deserve to have a salary. Yes, I should have had a salary. So you still have a salary then? No. So <laughs> how are you expected to pay for security for... So the BLM... Paid for security. Okay. Yes, they handled security. They handled flights. And you didn't feel that the organization you you never felt even in the midst of having all these feelings of being killed or something <laughs> happened to your family that you could go and press them to give you the resources in the salary or form or whatever to make sure that you were protected. I didn't want to take a salary because the very thing that has happened to me I didn't want to happen. But I wish I took a salary. Because I think it confuses people. They're like, wait, you're doing all this work and this is the thing you're most visible for and you're not getting paid through the organization. Like, everyone who I've talked to has been like, well, then how did you get paid? And I'm like, you guys, like, look at my resume. These are all the ways, these are all the other ways. But I, I, I would do a lot of things different. Like, I would never, this is like, is this a camera that I can look into? Yes. Who, if you ever start an organization and you make a lot of money, please, take a salary. Like, don't follow this. I don't think this was like good Well, it's advice. a job. It's a job. I mean, it's a and movement. You, and you're allowed to get paid for the job that you do. And you should. And black people should specifically. White people do it. All the time. But why do we feel <laughs> guilted into not doing it? Because we have a very complicated relationship to money. We do. And, and resources and the economy. Like, black people have a very complicated relationship to it. And that, that became really obvious with the attacks around, you know, my, my house and my homes, I was like, oh, this is not about me. This is some, these are deeper issues. Mm -hmm. And... So you took the oath of poverty? I took the oath of poverty when it came to the movement. Yeah, but even, even I mean, I'm not even sitting here suggesting you should have become rich from the movement. No, of course. I'm saying that you deserved to be paid to lead an organization. I agree with you. Okay, so now. then you decide <laughs> I'm walking away and you left it. I did. So are you involved at all? No, I mean, from 2021, May. It's one year, it's the anniversary. Yeah, I left and I'm not involved at all. I mean, these the BLM 990s are gonna be coming out in about a week and a half and so I'm on the 990, so I'm you know talking to the team about it, but not involved in the decision-making. I'm not involved in the day-to-day. -day. And you don't miss it? Do you miss it? No, I don't miss it. Are you proud of what you created? Yes, I'm very proud. Mm -hmm. I'm very, very proud. And I also, as someone who started several organizations, you know, both for-profit and non-profit, I don't believe that the work, especially inside the movement space, 
should ha be led by one person forever. I think there should be lead leadership changes, just like there is around presidents of a country. And, and as something as big as BLM, it's important that leadership shifts. You know, I really am proud of the work that BLM Grassroots is doing with Melina Abdullah and the team that's on the ground. And I think that <clears throat> that, that kind of work is really necessary. But I'm also more than an activist. I'm an artist, you know, I'm an educator, I'm an author. And that kind of work, being inside of BLM the way that I was, it's all consuming. And it's hard to be able to do other things that I want to be doing with my life. But when you started as an organization in 2000, was it 20 or 15? We became a formal nonprofit, like yeah. where the money went into the nonprofit's bank account in 2020. But do you at least still own it? No. With so you took your you name off all the paperwork? Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm so disappointed. That's the only criticism I have of you. Tell me I why. I want to hear your thoughts I have on a this. Because it's not easy. Yeah. Like this is like I worked at a union for 11 years and I mean like I got up every morning 6 a.m. and went to bed falling asleep doing work, fighting on arbitration panels, organizing, leading bargaining tables, creating coalitions, like messaging, flyers, carrying flyers, delivering flyers, phone calls, all hours of the night, holidays. Nobody cares about you as a person at yeah. that point. Yeah. I was I was just an organizer. I wasn't the leader of it. Yeah. To then not reap the benefit cuz there should be a benefit of doing that type of work, that, that selfless work and that thankless work, and then succumbing to the pressure of it and then just walking away. There's a documentary here and you should profit from that. <laughs> I would be putting together a documentary on it because I'm sitting here not just interviewing you as a black person who bought into the movement, believe in the movement, still believe in the movement and believe in you. I'm sitting here as a person who just started a nonprofit, yeah. who's getting ready to go through it, who's going to uh, raise a lot of money mm -hmm. and I'm going to make sure I mean I'm not gonna take a salary from that because I'm putting a person in place but there's work that that organization is gonna do that Hollywood Unlock is gonna be a part yeah. of so there's gonna have to be some yeah. support for the company here's the thing though be a lot and I and I hear you I think that's like a, a an important criticism and it's it's not like it's something that I didn't sit with over and over again like should I really do this but I think where BLM was at when I left, it was, I was not in a place to, I was not fit mentally and emotionally to lead. And I think we've seen leaders stay in a place because they feel obligated to it and they're not fit to lead and, it, and grave decisions get made. I was not well mentally. I was in a very, 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 very bad place. And I think that it was a responsible decision to mm. step away. Question could have been like, well, you could have took a sabbatical and came back. Gone to the board. You know, but there was no board yet. Oh, so there was nowhere else to go. No, mm. I was, so when we finally started in 2020, just, you know, it's important for the record, there, I was a the single board member and we were building everything out. We were like, okay, we, were, we had our strategy plan. We all had all these things in place. And then the attacks came. My biggest criticism for us and me included is like, we should have known we were going to be attacked. Yeah. <laughs> like, but when you're new and you're building something like you don't know, you know, I didn't know building Hollywood unlocked all the pitfalls out. You know, that's why I'm coming out with courses. Of course. <laughs> to show people, you know. <laughs> But I think not knowing we were going to be at attacked at the, at the rate we were attacked, you know, I was at a cyber um, 
I'm, I'm doing a lot of digital civil rights stuff now because of everything that happened to me. And, and Megan Markle was at the event with me and she was talking about how like, she didn't know that she was gonna be, you know, at the center of attacks. And I think something like at the height of her being attacked, the Daily Mail was doing 30 articles a day on her, mm -hmm. which is like more hours in a day, she said. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't know that the New York Post, cause that's, they're, they're like the primary attackers of me that they would be putting out multiple articles a day and then every single day and saturating the media with that message. And I wish we would have known because we could have put more in place because then maybe I would have stayed. But there wasn't enough in place to make sure that my mental health and my physical safety like, could withstand what happened. Is there a board there now? Yeah, there is. But you wouldn't go back if they invited you? No. No. So have you um, reconciled with everything that's happened? And you know, I know you're an author, so for lack of better words, mm -hmm. close the book. That uh, is that book closed, the Black Lives Matter book. Yes and no. I think it will be really closed. I'm um, like at the end of this year. Mm -hmm. Like I think that that chapter will be really closed. Mm -hmm. And I am thinking about doing a documentary. Yeah. No, you should do. <laughs> I'm going to do a documentary and I'm not going to donate the proceeds of that documentary because that life was mine. Like this experience mm. is yours. The movement is ours, but the life that you were living, mm. leading it was yours. And you deserve, yeah, you deserve to, um, to, to benefit from that. Okay. Um, so really, I want to ask this question about Donald Trump. Now, you know, he has, is it Silk and what's her name? I don't know. You know, the two black women that he had up there, Diamond oh, and Silk. Oh, yes, yes. Wasn't that the craziest thing? <laughs> now, when you refused to meet with him, was it because it was like, is this a real meeting, a real conversation? Are we going to have a real conversation? Or did you just know you were dealing with somebody who it wasn't going to be Yeah, I, I, a lot of us made like a very clear um, like line in the sand around meeting with Donald mm -hmm. Trump. Like, I'm not giving him the time of day. Mm -hmm. I love how you guys were so strategic, <laughs> mindful of optics, and everything as it related to everything but you. <laughs> I know! Because even the president of the United States has advisors who come around going, can't do that because you know this is going to happen. You can't do that. Like, you just didn't even think about it. I Which didn't. I know we brought a lot of humor to this interview, but, you know, it was, I'd be looking at in social media, and, you know, at Hollywood a lot, we, a long time ago, when, when you all started the Black Lives Matter movement, there was a, there was a, there was a conscious shift that we were going to focus on celebrity news. Mm. But because celebrities are so involved in what's happening, mm. we have to start covering what's happening. That's right. Figure out how to celebrity to it or not. And then after a while, we just start focusing on the things that matter. Mm. Because, yeah, you can see who's, what's the tea, who's dang, who's wearing right. what. But, like, there's, there's a guy who just got killed the other day by a police officer who put a gun in his head and shot and killed him. And there's this change at Instagram now where they uh, minimize reach of content yep. if it's been posted more than once. And I've told Facebook, I literally cussed them out the other day saying, you're complicit. That's right. When you shadow ban content that matters to our culture exactly in the killing right. of these black people. Do you agree? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's been really interesting. And I wish more people were writing about it and researching it and reporting on it, how BLM shifted so much and then how, the backlash, because to me, that's a backlash. Like that policy seems like a very like, um, you know, innocuous policy, but it's actually a backlash against a movement. Yeah. And I think that that's, it's so important to be challenging it. Yeah. So we're, we, I told him, I'm going to, I'm going to fight you. And so I told him, <laughs> I'm telling you to your face, get ready. I'm going to fight you on it. Because I feel like, again, you know, when you have 
content that goes viral, whether it's somebody playing on TikTok or something mm-hmm. cute feeding a dog, and all those ad dollars you can benefit from it. There are businesses or organizations like a BLM that's sharing content that's important that goes viral, that's but right. it's labeled violent content, so yeah. you can't make money. So it, it teaches you in a very subconscious way, like, this is bad, that's don't right. post it. That's exactly right. Right? Yes, it builds a culture around what you post. Because, you know, for us at the beginning, like, you posted what you, we were the news. We were bringing the news. It wasn't like mainstream media. They didn't care about what was happening to us. And then we made it popular to care about black people. Yeah. And now there's a real backlash against yeah, that. How dare you? Yep. Stealing all this money with this $10, $20 million house and $40 million a year salary. I can't. We talk about $1.4 million. Okay, well, listen. Um, is there anything I forgot or missed? Or we this was cover? excellent. No, but I want to do this more with you. This we was have to excellent. keep going. No, yeah. I said to Patrice, it's really important. I don't want a one and done. Thank and you. I'm not a like, let me get the interview to have the interview. Like, I believe in you. I believe in what you built. I believe in everything we talked about. I do believe that there's a lynching in uh, black people who are successful in the mm-hmm. media. I look at now my rise. I went to the Grammys with Tiffany Haddish in the sexiest Tom Ford suit. <laughs> and the biggest story that came out is, why is Jason Lee at the Grammys? I saw that. And it was written by somebody who wasn't invited to the Grammys. <laughs> I'm like, I'm here because you ain't here. You know, but, but it's comical now yes, until I get but, to that level of yeah. success where every day there's 30 pieces of something, mm-hmm. which is baseless and nothing. That's right. Okay, so what's next? So documentaries come in. <laughs> I'm working on a lot of fun TV, not just fun, but meaningful and fun TV film content right now. Mm-hmm. Um, being at Warner Brothers, so strange, because it's like I literally came, went to, I was from the movement and now I'm at Warner Brothers. And it's been a pleasure. It's been a joy to be there. I have, I'm working with some amazing black execs and working with just amazing black creatives, lots of sci-fi. I'm a big sci-fi person. Lots of comedy, lots of drama. A lot of it's focused on, you know, some of my favorite TV shows right now are Secession and the and Winning Time. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really kind of looking at character-driven work, but based off of what's happening politically. Um, I'm, I have my book. My book came out uh, this year, uh, an abolitionist handbook, Twelve Steps to Changing Yourself in the World. So I've been pushing the book and. Just like being with my family and loving on my on my kid and, and hanging out and so you're not gonna write a book called um, how the how how my black life didn't matter no that could be that seller I just want my ten percent okay so do you think Kamala Harris is doing enough for black people oh um I think VP Harris is I'm not quite sure to be honest with you I've been very much focused on local politics and not focus as much on national politics. Uh, I think it's a tricky time for national politics given everything that's happening with the backlash. And I think anything black is like kind of faux pas to touch right now, Mm -hmm. honestly. Mm -hmm. Like we had this amazing moment in 2020 and everybody was saying Black Lives Matter and now everybody's like, "Uh, I I don't know if I believe in that anymore. So I don't don't know if I want to like pin things on her, but I do think it's a tricky time to try to be black, try to be progressive, and do amazing things. And I, I'm seeing that here at the local level a lot. Do you think Joe Biden and the Biden administration is doing enough for black people? And we just had the, um, um, the Supreme Court justice appointed. Yeah, um, thank goodness. Barely. Yeah. <laughs> um, we saw the anti-lynching bill. 
like come through. I yeah, mean, which, which I was very uh, critical of them before all that was happening because I was then, like, hello. And then all of a sudden, it seemed like somebody black got in there and said, "Do it, do it, do it." <laughs> do, do you think he's doing enough? Enough? No. Um, there's so much that needs to happen for black people. I don't think one president, one administration can ever do enough unless they really came in the gate. Like we bring in reparations, we are defunding the police, we are, you know, there is a, a kind of agenda that black people, specifically black poor people need that is going to take not just the national government, but the whole entire country mm -hmm. to get behind. Mm -hmm. That's why there's a whole, that's why there's a whole movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I am deeply disappointed in both parties. I think both parties have been a big devastation to black communities. And I, and at the end of the day, as a, as an organizer, you know, I'm still going to have that hope that one day our movements will push it over the edge. Mm -hmm. You know, we did a lot of work these last 10 years and we're experiencing the backlash because of it. Backlash only happens if you're effective. Mm -hmm. if, they, if they ain't checking for you, then you're not doing much. But you stepping down made it effective. You're right. You know? No, I, 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 I said when I stepped down internally, I said the right wing won this one, mm. but I have a long life to live. Like, I, they did win that. Mm -hmm. We were not prepared for it. And that sucks but the most frustrating part is that we let them win yes we you did. know and i mean at some point we as a people have to stop letting them win and own those wins like, we right. have to own their wins that's right okay the, the last thing i'll say to that though is it's a lesson and every lesson you can learn from and every lesson you can grow from and come back stronger mm -hmm. and that's my goal okay uh, friend to the show, friend to me, friend in life, uh, Congresswoman Karen Bass. We talk about yes. local politics. Yes. She's running for mayor, mm -hmm. uh, chair of the uh, Congressional Black Caucus. Mm -hmm. She literally helped me get somebody out of prison yes. and then came on the show and met with, him and met with him and then talked about him at Congress. And so I really believe she believes in it. Me and Melina are going back and forth. We had a conversation. It was really quick. She explained <laughs> to me her rationale in that op-ed she wrote. I co-wrote it with her. Okay, so I'm going to let you have it too. <laughs> We not canceling black people. We not, I know we need to still question black people, but like why now Rick Caruso soaring, now they're neck and neck. How is it this billionaire guy who's not important to our issues and heart of Black Lives Matter being important, neck and neck with somebody who's actually fought to get black lives out of prison? Yeah, I mean, that's not our fault that they're neck and neck. He's a billionaire, so he's he is, buying it. Yeah, he's buying it and she should win, um, hands down. And you know, I think part of what, and, and I have had these conversations with Congresswoman Bass myself. You know, I'm very close to her. I've known her for a long time. So has Melina. And we, and she, you know, when we discussed, she's like, I know that you're going to have to hold me accountable. I know that you're going to have to challenge me. And I think that we don't need her to say defund the police. We get it. But I think what we need to know is that when she becomes the mayor, that she is going to be supportive of the work that's been happening on the ground for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And that work has been trying to ensure that the criminal legal system in Los Angeles is not an overbloated system mm -hmm. and that that system is not the system that is going to keep eating away at our communities. And we need a commitment from her around that. And mm -hmm. I know it's difficult. I know it's challenging. We're in a really awful moment when it comes to that backlash, because what happened is we were winning, we were winning. And then the back to our, the first part of this conversation, unions got the police unions got together. 
they got with some of the best comms agencies because let's be clear when you go out and talk to some of like the top 20 comms firms the cops are being represented by them mm -hmm. and then they started messaging they started using smash and grab messaging and they started saying this is why the cops are necessary and so it's put people who are progressive in a bind and a political bind and it's important that we start to call it out just like we are calling out the mis misinformation disinformation around me we should also be calling that out around the police and we should ask our electeds to, mm -hmm. to be bold enough to call it out as well but when we take the op-ed piece that you guys co-wrote together and then you see how mainstream now has caught it and it's like they don't stand behind her. When we all know, we don't want him to win yeah, over her. Yeah. How do we deal with that conflict? Because I was talking to Melina, and she was explaining to me the rationale, and I was really conflicted with not understanding why would we not just come out and say, hands down, this is who we're endorsing and why? Because, honestly, if, you know, it, Congresswoman Bass made that very difficult when she put out a whole report supporting the police. Mm -hmm. Like, at that point, we, and we were nuanced in that op-ed. It was like, we love her and we want her to come back to the table with us. But if a whole movement has been saying, hey, defund the police, and then one, one of the people who we want to get elected, I want to see Congresswoman Bass elected. I want to make, elected, I want to make that very clear. But you want her to be accountable. I want her to be accountable. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So now that we're in the primary, when we get to the general yeah. and it's just two names. Bass. Yes. And I'm door knocking okay. and I'm making sure she gets it. All right. Yeah. Well, listen, um, this has been amazing. I enjoyed it. I don't even know how much time we took, but I think we took <laughs> enough time to talk about it all. So let's stay in touch. And when you, uh, I want to do more. Good. You know, and then when you um, do the book, How the Black Lives Matter <laughs> Movement Failed Me, or the documentary, I want to be there hosting the <laughs> premiere party. <laughs> I appreciate you. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Peace. All right, look, that was a great show. And make sure you keep coming back because we got all types of amazing interviews and topics that are going to make you go crazy. Uh-huh, that's right. That means like, subscribe, do everything you need to do to make sure you stay up to date with what we got going on. And ladies, stay tuned in because you know I have your back. And listen, make sure that you're commenting below because even though I say I don't read it on the show, that's all I do when it's over. Peace.